are in our March series that is called March Madness. This is actually the last Sunday in March already. And uh, I, the, the goal of this series has been to challenge you and encourage you to, to go deeper in your faith in Jesus. That's always our heart with everything we do, uh, is that you, we would go deeper in our faith. And uh, especially this month, I, I pray that, uh, that this series challenged you. The, the, the idea behind this series is that there's much about the, the faith life that we live that to the world can look crazy. In fact, one of the verses I've shared quite a bit was out of 1 Corinthians 1, where Apostle Paul said that the message of the cross is foolishness or madness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so there's gonna be aspects of our life that are gonna look like madness, but if we really wanna experience the power of God in our life, we have to embrace this madness. And so uh, today we're gonna finish off this series and uh, my text verse today actually is out of Galatians chapter two. And I'm gonna invite you to stand with me uh, as we read God's word together. Uh, verses 20 and 21, very, very popular verse, uh, or maybe unpopular in some ways, but very well-known verse, let's put it that way. Uh, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Everyone say, by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thank God for his grace, amen? The title of my message today is Mad Faith. And I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. I wanna read a verse as we go into prayer this morning, just uh, exalting the Lord. You know, we had praise and worship a minute ago, but we can worship God with our voices even if instruments aren't playing, amen? And uh, I just wanna worship him as we pray today. Psalm 145 says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you are great. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our adoration. You're worthy of all that we are, God. You're worthy of our faith. And Lord, today I pray that you would challenge us to have mad faith, to come to you, God, in such a way that we lay it all out before you and let you have your way in our life. Lord, we thank you that it is your word that's gonna transform us. We pray that you would do your work, that our hearts would be the soil that would be fertile, that this word would be planted and grow in our lives. And it's for your glory and for our good. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You can take your seat. So mad faith, you know, my text verse says that we live by faith in the Son of God. Uh, we live by faith in Jesus, right? It's the most fundamental, basic tenet of the Christian faith is this, that we live by faith, we don't live by works, we don't live by potions, we don't live by anything other than faith, and it's faith not in us, not in a church, not in a religion, it's in Jesus. Very simple. The whole gospel is summed up in this one verse, in Galatians 2, verse 20. And that doesn't seem like madness, does it? We're talking about, you know, madness, the, the, the mad, the, the, the acts of faith that look like madness to the world. Faith doesn't seem like madness. In fact, it's kind of ambiguous when you talk about faith in the Son of God, right? Because that can mean so many things. In fact, the, most people have some level of faith in God. In fact, the Bible tells us that all of us have been apportioned a measure of faith. 
And most people even would, would go as far as to say that they believe in God. I think it's around 80% of Americans say that they believe in the existence of God to some degree. Now, but what does that look like is all over the place, right? Like how much do you believe? How much faith do you put in what you actually say you believe, right? Do you believe that, that he's good all the time? Even though we say it, do we really believe that he's good all the time? Do we believe that he's all sufficient? Do we believe that he is all powerful? Do we believe that he's everywhere? Do we believe that he made everything? Do, you, do I believe that he made me? Do I believe that he saved me? Do I believe that I can trust him with everything in my life? So you can see that faith in God can go from as, as little as just saying, yeah, I believe there's a God, but not really doing anything about it, all the way to the place of everything in my life depends on him. That there's nothing in my life that is separate from my faith. There's all different levels. So we have to ask ourselves, where do we fall on that spectrum in life? Because see, we could say we believe something or even think we believe something about God, but we really don't know if we believe it until it's tested, right? You don't know what you believe about anything for sure until it's tested. I can declare and proclaim that I believe God is my provider and that he's good and that he's generous and he gives me everything I have and he's so good to me and he takes care of all my needs. But then when I have a financial struggle and I'm unable to pay my bills for some whatever reason, I can shake my proverbial fist at him because things didn't go the way I wanted it to go. So do I still, do I really believe that he's my provider? Or am I just saying that because right now things are going okay? You know, what we believe about God in the valley is, the, is, is true on the mountain too. Both ways. If I believe it, I believe it. It doesn't matter where I'm at geographically but sometimes we don't really know what that is until it is tested. And if I'm honest, I feel like there's somewhat of a self-awareness deficiency in the church. Uh, I'm guilty of it too. I think we all are at some, on some level that we can be, uh, lose self-awareness in really where we are in our faith because we know how to say the right things. We know how to do the right things. We know the, the uh, behavior we're supposed to have in church and around Christians, but do we really believe what we say we believe and to what level do we believe it? You know, we all know those people in life that aren't self-aware. And if you don't know anybody in life that's not self-aware, you're probably the one. <laughs> but you know, the person that says, oh yeah, I'm just so organized. And you know their life is nothing but chaos, right? Or that person that just really thinks they're funny, but everybody else thinks they're annoying. You know, hopefully that's not you. Uh, I, I, I have had a very, um, I had to learn self-awareness when it came to how I was perceived when I first moved here, came from up north, and if you know up north, sarcasm is a love language, right? You're only nice to someone if you're up to something. So sarcasm is just a way of, a term of endearment most of the time, and so I brought that down here to the Bible Belt in the south. And we'd have, you know, social gatherings in church or get together with friends, and you know, on the way home, Joy would say, what are you doing? And I'd say, what, what are you talking about? Like, she's like, you totally upset and offended that person. Like, no, no, they thought it was funny. And then she says, well, why were they crying? <laughs> well, they were, thought it was really funny, I guess. I don't know. And uh, she would confront me on my lack of self-awareness when it came to that all the time. And, you know, being the godly man I am, I received it so well every time she said it. <laughs> wow, you don't believe it either, huh? Okay. Uh, no, I didn't always, actually. But uh, I've come a long way in that. And I've had to learn. We have to learn self-awareness. And there's nothing better than being around somebody that is self-aware, right? 
but it's more important than any other aspect of life that we're self-aware spiritually, that we know where we are in our faith and we know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And the beauty of it is if we don't measure up like we think we should, that's great because the, the, the start of growth in our life is recognizing where we are. So we have to know where we are. We have to have enough self-awareness to know where we are. But the reality is it can seem like an uphill battle in life, can't it? To really have the faith that Paul talked about in my text verse, to say that I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's not some ambiguous haphazard faith. That is, he is everything. He's my life, but boy, can it be an uphill battle. And not just even in just our flesh, our own internal struggles we have with that, but even societal pressures that come our way, right? Because society would say that it's okay to have faith, but that it's foolish to have mad faith, to have extreme faith, right? Society would say, and I'm not here to bang on society, okay? It's not, it's not society's fault. It's not people, people that are outside of faith. It's not their fault that they feel the way they do. They don't know if you don't know, right? But that's what we're confronted with every day. And even most people in society would say it's okay to have faith, but don't really let faith drive the car, right? Let faith be a passenger. In fact, let it be in the back seat. You can let it know if you need something. You know, faith is just something you use when you're in a state of chaos or crisis and you really need something. That's when we pray, right? Everybody's prayer life goes up when the, when the uh, pilot comes on the loudspeaker and says, hey, we're going down. Everybody starts to pray then, right? And that's what society would say is just, it's okay to have faith, but don't really let your life hinge on it. Like make sure it's a moderate thing that just kind of hovers there, right? In fact, society's approach to faith, and even for that matter, many in the church approach to faith is similar to what I've, I compared it in first service to uh, like men with Pinterest, okay? Most men with Pinterest. We know it's there and we know it's probably a bigger deal than we're willing to admit, but we just don't want anything to do with it, right? Kind of like most women with sports. They know it's there. They know it's kind of a big deal. They know that tournament coming up in a couple weeks here is kind of a big deal, but they really don't want anything to do with it. All they know is it just makes the traffic really bad, right? And that's how so many people are with faith. It's like, yeah, it's probably a bigger deal than I'm really giving it time and attention, but I just don't really want to deal with it. And God forbid that that would be that pressure that we would feel in our lives would affect us, right? We have to determine that we're going to push against that pressure and live the life that God has called us to live in the faith. You see, the world hopes that there's a God and a heaven. Christians are just crazy enough to actually believe that there is a God, one God, and that he made a way for us to go to heaven with him when that time comes. But you see, the Christian life is, the Christian faith, I should say, in many, many ways is a paradox. And if you're not familiar with paradox, it's basically a, a, something that seems to contradict itself on the surface, but when you look past the surface, you realize it really doesn't. Man, there's so much about our faith that is a paradox that seems so contradictory and can make it a challenge for us, right? In fact, I'm gonna give you just a few of them real quick just to kind of get your wheels spinning here, okay? So the Bible says that to truly live, you must lose your life. Seems contradictory, right? It also says to gain strength, we have to be weak. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that our weakness is actually a strength in the hands of God in our life. That's a, that's a contradiction and that's crazy talk that we are made great by being a servant only in the faith 
Has anybody been considered great because they are a servant? We're exalted when we're humble. We take the lowly position so we can be exalted in God's eyes. We're justified by faith, not works, but faith without works is dead. That can be confusing, right? Seems like a contradiction, but if you, if you know the word and you know what this faith life is, you understand that too, that they work together. There's so many things, and then finally, we're dead and we're alive, which takes me to my text verse, back to our text verse in Galatians 2.20. Paul said that I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. He's saying I'm dead. Crucifixion is an act of death. He said, I'm dead. I no longer live. But then he goes on to say, but the life I live, I live by faith. So it can seem like a, a contradiction there. But what he's saying is because I'm found in Jesus, my life is no longer mine anymore that I, I don't have a choice to live this faith life, some haphazard, so, ho, you know, so, so, whatever, happy, happy, joy, joy, God's just there if I need him for a crisis. But it's really about, I can't, I don't even live unless the spirit of God is in me. That I live this life by faith, that I have no other option but to live by faith. That's a challenge for us, especially when we see so many people not living by faith and they seem to be doing just fine. But the reality is, once you know, you know. And when there's no going back, right? I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. It's because once we start following him, we realize, man, that stuff I left behind is nothing, it's no good. Even though this is harder sometimes following him, it's still worth it. Because it is so much more fulfilling. I have so much more purpose in my life when I'm living it for Jesus, even though it may be challenging and difficult at times. This is why the life of faith is so challenging and why it's impossible to please God without it because we are dead without him, spiritually dead without our God. So he says in Hebrews eleven six, a very famous verse, it says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if you wanna please God, you have to believe that he is who he says he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, that he is someone that we can expect good things from him. In fact, I'm about to get into that in a moment about being expectant. You see, this verse flies in the face of an ambiguous, tempered faith that so many would wanna have. It says that my life is found in him and that I have to believe not only that he exists, but that he rewards. So we are called to this mad faith. Okay, this crazy faith, this extreme faith, as many people would see it in our life. So how does that look? What does it look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I want to give you a couple things that I think will, uh, will challenge you today, in fact, and give you a little bit of perspective even on what, what this faith life is meant to look like for each one of us. And first of all, mad faith is expectant, not cynical. It's expectant not cynical. I just read in Hebrews eleven six 6 that we are to believe that he is a rewarder. We are to expect that he exists and that he's good and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, who eagerly seek him, who are determined and intentional and purposeful in their life to not let their faith be in the passenger seat, but actually to let it be in the driver's seat. That he rewards those. We are called to be expectant. In fact, I, I want to free some of you up today that feel like your faith is you're just supposed to just take your lumps and everything just is kind of is what it is and you've gotten to a place in your faith where you don't really expect much from God. 
Can I tell you today, it's actually good and healthy to be expectant in your faith. It's really good and healthy. Now, does that mean all of our expectations are gonna be met? Of course not, because sometimes our expectations are based on what we want, not necessarily on what God wants or what God's plan is for us. But we are called to be expectant. But our tendency in life is to be a little more on the cynical side, right? Especially as you have experience in life, cynicism kind of takes over because the opposite of, of being cynical is to be naive in, in life. And none of us want to be considered to be naive. That's a, that's a negative put down to be called naive. I'd rather be a little bit cynical because that, that implies that I have some wisdom because I've lived life. Oh, you're just naive. You've never experienced what I've experienced. And so we can be cynical in life and it can also flow into our life of faith as well. Where many of us, the best we can offer is to maybe be cautiously optimistic in our faith or to have kind of a wait and see approach would be another way of putting it. Kind of to be the person that's kind of standing on the shore of faith while everybody else is going into the ocean and you're kind of standing there waiting to make sure the water's safe. There's no sharks or jellyfish or anything like that. Can I tell you today, the enemy of your soul loves, loves, loves wait and see Christians. Loves when we are cautiously optimistic in our faith. And you know why? Because cautiously optimistic Christians don't ever storm the gates of hell. They don't ever really do much of anything for the kingdom of God because a cautiously optimistic Christian is just more about themselves. They're kind of waiting to see what God's gonna do and don't really have much of an impact on the kingdom of, of God and against the kingdom of our enemy. And because of that, the enemy of your soul doesn't really care. You're not really uh, much of a threat to him because you're not affecting his kingdom because you're just kind of waiting and seeing. Can I tell you today that God doesn't meet us on the shore? God meets us in the deep places. He wants us to go out to the deep places. Now, does that mean, I understand that we're all at different places in our faith, and it doesn't mean that if you know, you're, you're kind of on the sidelines of your faith that God's just ignoring you. That's not what I'm saying here at all. There's grace for us, okay? But as we grow in our faith, and if you've been saved for a while, but you're just determined you're gonna stand on the shore and play it safe and wait for God to bring some big boat along for you, you're not going to experience God in the way that you want to. And you don't have to take my word for it. I'm gonna read you a verse here out of James chapter one. Now, let me tell you, James was from the north. He was from north Israel. I can promise you that, okay? He didn't, he didn't sweeten his words very much. Uh, it says, but when he asks, he must believe, must be expectant and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Again, from the north. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. In other words, James is saying, you want to receive? Be expectant. Otherwise, you're not going to receive anything from God. He doesn't, he doesn't, we cannot manipulate God, right? We can do that in human relationships. We can say, you know, what have you done for me lately? I'm going to wait and see till you do something before I respond. And sometimes that will cause that other person to respond and do something that you want them to do. But in faith, God will not be manipulated. God says, I've already done everything I need to do. I want you to respond to my great love for you, my great sacrifice I made for you. And when we respond, he meets us in those deep places. That's what he wants to do for us. He, and, and James, I love what he's saying here. He's saying that, we're, that, that those of us that miss out, it's that we're double-minded, okay? 
It's not that we're always standing on the shore, never willing to do anything, or that we're always in deep with our God. He's saying what you're doing is you're waffling back and forth. You're double-minded. And, and man, I mean, there isn't a human out there that can't relate to this. Or, you know, one minute you're like, yes, God, I trust you. You're amazing. I'm, I'm so excited. You're awesome. Oh, wait a minute. Nope. I think I just saw a shark in the water. And we run back over here. And then we stay over here for a while and they're like, uh, okay. And you go back and you're just constantly going back and forth. James is saying that is a double-minded man and you should not think that you will receive anything because you're not really being expected. You're kind of being led by your emotions and your feelings and the, the flavor of the day and what's happening and you're not really being led by the Spirit of God. You cannot confidently lean on God's strength and grace, but we also know enough to know that we can't lean on our own strength either. So we're double-minded, just going back and forth. Sometimes it's from Sunday morning to Monday morning, then Wednesday, and then back on Tuesday or Thursday, and then back on Sunday. We're just, we're constantly being, we're almost victims of our thoughts and our emotions. And God would tell us that's not the life of faith that he's called us to live. We have emotions, but they don't have to have us. They don't have to have the say. They don't, man, if the emotions are driving the car, God bless you, good luck. You're gonna be in ditches all over the place. Because you can't trust them because that's exactly what they do. Constantly in conflict with ourselves. And Jesus says, you know, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. And he was talking specifically about money when he mentioned that. But we all know that money just really means everything that this world has to give. Because right, right, nothing in this world is free. So whatever that is, the stuff, you cannot serve that and serve God. Because you'll love one and hate the other. It's the same idea as being double-minded. Like, I want it all. I want, I want all the good stuff that I can get, but I also want relation with God. And he says, he wants us to be committed. He's going to meet us in that place of depth. And in contrast to being double-minded, in Hebrews 11:1, 1, it says that faith is to be sure of the things we hope for and certain of the things we can't see. Faith is to be sure of the things we hope for. That's the opposite of being double-minded. I'm sure and I'm certain that what I believe is what I'm gonna live out in my life. Now, does that mean we, you know, if we live that verse that we never have any doubts, we never have any struggles? Of course not. We're humans. We're going to have doubts. But what he's saying here in Hebrews 11, 1 is faith is about being expectant that God is real and he's gonna show up. And he's gonna be the God that he says he's going to be in your life. It is good and healthy to be expectant in your relationship with Jesus. Don't be afraid to do things that will scare you. Or I should say, if you're scared, still do it. Just like I said earlier, it comes to inviting somebody to church on Easter. If you're scared, still do it. If, if, you're, if there's something God's impressed upon you or challenging you to do in faith and you're scared to do it, it's okay to be scared, do it anyway. And I can tell you, God will meet you in that place. I, the greatest times of growth in my faith that, that I can actually see you know, there's, there's growth in my faith that I know just happens daily as I just serve Jesus and I live for him. But there's times you can actually see, oh yeah, I really grew in that season. The times that that happened in my life is the times that I stepped out in faith when my knees were knocking. And I was terrified and I was saying, God, are you sure? I'm pretty sure there's a shark in there. I'm pretty sure I just saw a huge whale, you know? But I did it anyway and God meets us in those places, guys. The more scared you are, the more he's gonna meet you. All right, so the next thing that mad faith is, it is progressing and not stagnant. 
progressing, not stagnant. Our faith should be growing. Can somebody say amen? Our faith should be growing. I don't mind challenging you guys. Our, you shouldn't have, if you look back five years, where you were five years in your faith, if you're the same today as you were five years ago, you're missing something. We shouldn't even look back a year and say that we're at the same place in our faith. And I'm not just talking about head knowledge. I'm talking about like your ability, your resourcefulness when it comes to trusting your God, believing that he is who he says he is. You know, think, I mean, a year goes fast. The older you get, you know, years just feel like a couple days. A year ago, we were in the middle of the hotbed of COVID, right? That was, only, it was just 12 months ago. Think about where you were in your faith then, where you are today. If you have not grown in your faith, if you don't feel like you trust Jesus more in your faith, then you probably become a little stagnant. And you know, stagnant faith is really gross. Now, I've been stagnant in my faith too. So I'm not up here preaching and yelling at you guys. We've all, I've gone through seasons where I was stagnant. But have you ever driven by a stagnant body of water, like a pond that's just stagnant? It's got like algae growing on it. There's muck, bugs, and just looks gross. Looks like nasty bath water. We've all seen that, right? You know what's consistent about something like that? It doesn't draw anybody to it. You never see people swimming in a stagnant lake that looks gross, right? Kids throw, running and jumping in with beach balls and all those things. You never see that. Nobody's drawn to a stagnant pond. Nobody is drawn to stagnant faith either. Nobody. Part of the reason that we're seeing Christianity declining in our society is because of stagnant faith in the church. That's not the only reason, but that's part of it. We have to live in such a way that the people outside of faith see that and go, okay, I see. I see what you're doing. You really live in what you say you believe, right? That's what draws people. I mean, for all of us that when we've been encouraged in our faith and challenged in our faith, you probably can think back to somebody in your life that you saw them living out their faith and went, ooh, okay, I see what you did there. And it's challenged us, encouraged us. You know, maybe made you feel bad about yourself for a minute sometimes. But stagnant faith doesn't do anything for the kingdom of God. And if we're not here to help advance the kingdom of God, what are we doing? If it was just about us getting saved, and then that's it. You know, we've said it many times here at this church, if it's just about getting saved, as soon as you got saved, God would just take you to heaven and be over with. But he doesn't because there's work to do here to help advance his kingdom. Second Peter three, verse 18, says grow, progress in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not called to sit on our laurels. So how do I progress? Well, there's a couple ways. There's a lot of ways, actually. I'll give you a couple obvious ones today, okay? Just like any relationship, if you're gonna progress in a relationship, you have to spend time with that person. If you're gonna progress in a romantic relationship, you have to spend time together. If you're gonna progress in the relationship with a friend, you're gonna have to spend time together. If you're gonna progress in your relationship with your dog, you've gotta spend time together, right? You gotta build that trust. Why would it be any different to think if we're gonna progress in our faith and our relationship with Jesus, that it's gonna be done any other way than time? We have to be willing to take time to be with Jesus. And we have this unbelievable, incredible advantage in this life where we have the word of God written on pages that's been passed down 
from generation to generation to generation. We have it in the palm of our hands. Most of us have 10, 12, 15, 20 Bibles in our home. In our home. And we have to crack it open consistently. We have to be in the word. I'm telling you, church, the Bible illiteracy in the United States church is epidemic proportions. It's a way worse epidemic than COVID ever dreamed of being. We have to know the word. You cannot grow in your faith. If you're telling me you're stagnant in your faith and you're frustrated because you don't think you ever get anything from God and you're not seeing God moving in your life, the first thing I'm gonna ask you is, are you in the word? Are you in the word consistently? Not just when you need something, are you in it consistently? It's remarkable that pastors and churches have to stand up in front of their church and beg us to read our Bibles. It's really incredible. It's like going to a restaurant and you ordered food and you sat down and the chef comes out in the dining room and he stands up in front of all the people in his restaurant and goes, hey guys, you guys gotta eat. Everybody would look at him and go, that's why we're here. I'm here to eat, just give me some food. But yet in the church, we have to beg believers to read their Bibles. How do you, if you, if you're not, if you want to grow in your faith in any way, it's not going to happen just on Sunday mornings. I mean, best case scenario, I'm giving you six, seven, eight, nine verses. That's just a snippet of what's in the word. And to really know your God and to grow your faith, you've got to be in it. You can't grow in something you don't know. And it does not happen without putting the time in to do it. And then that, from that in our prayer life and just spending time with Jesus, from that springboards off of that is the obedience, which is something that really helps our faith progress as well, is obedience to God. There is no faith without obedience, period. I can say I have faith in God. If I don't obey him, I don't really believe in him. Well, I don't believe that he is who he says he is. So obedience is a natural outpouring of that relationship with Jesus. And the maturity and health of our faith is directly proportional to our level of obedience. And listen, some of, the, some of the stuff about obeying God is obvious. You know, we know what the Bible says. There's, there's, there's so many aspects of a, the life of faith that we know, and it makes sense that we would obey God in certain ways. But it's also about obeying him when it doesn't make sense, where it's not written down in the word of God in black and white. We know the word says, you know, to honor your mother and father. So that's easy. You know, we know that's something we have to obey, you know, to be faithful to your spouse, to, to give back to the Lord. You reap what you sow, you know. So we, we know about all those things. But there's times God will put something on your heart that's not necessarily in the word, encouraging you and challenging you in your faith. And it's just as important, if not more important, in those times that we obey him. Let me give you a quick story out of the word. Um, in uh, 2 Kings, it's chapter three, I believe. Uh, so there's these three kings. It's the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, okay? And they are... Uh, the king of Moab decides to revolt against the king of Israel. He was supposed to give him 100,000 sheep, I think, and 100,000 uh, sh sheep's worth of wool, and he rebelled against him, said he ain't gonna do it. So the king of Israel got the king of Judah and the king of Edom to help him to go get this because they were in dire need of having these, these resources. And so they get together, they decide to go to Moab to take what's rightfully theirs, right? And they are in the desert, it's a seven-day journey, or they're on their seventh day of journey going to Moab. And they're in the middle of the desert. And the Bible says they ran out of water and they had no water left for the soldiers or for their animals. And I don't know how they got to this place, but they're nowhere near anything. So they're basically like, oh, great. We came out here and now we're gonna die. And so Elisha, 
was actually in the group with, all, with these armies with them. So they had Elisha brought to them and they said, hey, Elisha, ask the Lord what he wants us to do. Because, you know, this is old covenant. Not everybody could speak to the Lord or hear from God except the, the special anointed prophets and men of God like that. And so Elisha was one of those. So uh, he asked, they asked Elisha to pray. Elisha goes to the Lord, prays, comes back to them and says, okay, this is what the Lord says. I want you to fill this valley full of ditches. Just get some shovels, get out here and start digging. And the kings never questioned him and they did it. And what happened was really amazing because Elisha said, you're gonna dig these ditches and the Lord's gonna fill them up with water. So they dug these ditches. Next morning they get up, ditches are full of water. No rain came, nothing. But the ditches in the desert filled up with water. Total miracle from God. They're able to water their horses and their animals and the, the soldiers were able to drink water. It was an incredible miracle. But on top of that, it says that the king of Moab and his army could see down in the valley what was happening and they saw the ditches full of water, but because the sun was coming up and reflecting off it, it actually looked like blood to the king of Moab. So he said, ha ha, these three kings turned on each other and killed each other. Their armies all destroyed each other. He tells his army, let's go, let's get the plunder. Let's have a good day today. And the army just kind of haphazardly goes into this valley thinking they were just gonna take everything and go home. And their three armies were right, waiting for them. They were ready. And so the uh, three armies routed the army of Moab and defeated them and got what was rightfully theirs. It was this incredible victory that God gave them in that situation. An unbelievable victory. It was beautiful. And what we see here is that these kings were being obedient to God because God had told them what to do and they did exactly what he said to do. Now you'll hear, I've heard preaching on this passage where, you know, the, the challenge or the, uh, the, the thing you're supposed to do in response to this message is to go dig your ditches. Go dig your ditches and wait for God's blessing. And can I tell you today that that is absolutely not what this passage is saying? Because they got a direct order from God or a direct, you know, command from God to go do this. This passage is about obedience. It's about obeying when it doesn't make sense. And you know what? God's gonna do that in our life. He's gonna ask us to do things that are not gonna make sense to people on the outside of faith and even sometimes to people on the inside of faith. Like we could be incredibly discouraged sometimes even by our church folk because they're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. But if you know you've heard from God in your heart to do something, it is important that we do it. And can I tell you today, anytime God asks us to obey him about something like that, it's gonna cost us something. This cost them something. Can you imagine when these kings went to the soldiers and said, hey guys, I know you're thirsty and we're out of water, and I know it's 150 degrees out here in the sun, but I need you to dig a bunch of ditches. Just go ahead, just trust me. Just dig some ditches. That caught, imagine the soldiers' reaction when the king walked away and the, the words that were said, they're words that probably could never be repeated in a church because I'm sure they were frustrated, but they did it and God met them in that place because of their obedience, because they were not willing to just be stagnant. They obeyed God and allowed him to work on their behalf. It's a powerful story of God's faithfulness in their life. Obedience is such an important aspect of what we do in our walk with God. Our faith should cost us. You know God tests us? God tests us all the time. You don't always hear this because it doesn't sound real happy, happy, but God will test our faith. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, 7, in verse 6, he's actually talking about the trials that come our way. And in verse 7, he says that these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I love this verse. He's saying, listen, tests are gonna come, trials are gonna come, but these come so that your faith can be proved genuine. You know, genuine faith is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Because if it's not a genuine faith, it's not a real faith. So God wants us to, wants to prove our faith, not to him, but to us. So that we can know that we really believe what we say we believe. And if God's doing that in our life, we can trust him. See, the testing in our life shows us our deficiencies in our faith. But it's not to beat us down, it's to help us to see them so we can grow from them. Every one of us have failed in our faith. Every one of us have failed tests that have come our way from God. All the time. The key is to allow that to be exposed in your life so you can grow from those failures. And I love that Peter says here that it is to result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. And I know this is my little, this is my little soapbox that I feel like I say almost every week. But everything good in our life, every blessing in our life is always comes back to praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. It's all about him. It always will be. We just get to get swept up in that blessing sometimes. But everything he does in our life is for him first. Amen. All right, and then lastly, mad faith is reckless, not safe. It's reckless and not safe. Now listen, I know reckless has a negative connotation, and this is not a license to just do whatever and expect God to just bless it, right? Because even these three kings, they, what they did would have been considered reckless by those that were watching from the outside, right? Digging ditches and working hard when you have no water left. But they had a directive from God. And so sometimes our faith is going to look reckless if we are genuinely, wholeheartedly really following God. Now nobody wants to be with somebody that's a reckless driver, right? If you've been with a reckless driver and you, you, know, you clutch the door handle and you're just, you're just convinced you're gonna die, but you somehow survive, nobody likes that. I'm not talking about the, the reckless throw all wisdom to the wind and just floor it and hope for the best. But to be willing to be radical in our commitment in following the will of God for our life by the perception of other people, our faith should seem reckless at times. And you know, pretty much every disciple in the, new, in the early church would have been considered reckless by today's standards. You know, the apostle Paul in Acts 21, he was in Caesarea and he was about to go to Rome and the church in Caesarea begged him not to go. They said, Paul, please don't go. Please don't go. Because one guy had a dream uh, that, that, that Paul was actually gonna be imprisoned if he went. It was a dream or a vision, I can't remember. And Paul said, basically, Paul said to them, listen, I'm fully prepared to be in prison when I go to Rome. He said, I'm ready to die for Jesus. And so they, they let him go. But even them, they looked at that as like, this is reckless, Paul. Like, the church needs you. You're going around sharing the gospel and people are getting saved all over the place. We don't need you in prison. But the reality is, he did go to Rome. He did go to prison. He did end up giving his life for Jesus. But while he was in prison, he wrote four of his, the epistles that we have in the New Testament today. So even in that, God had a purpose, right? But our expectation could be, I mean, imagine what it would be today in the church if we were in the early church and the Apostle Paul was around. We would all be like, 
doing everything to protect him. We'd make him walk around in bubble wrap to make sure he didn't get hurt, right? Because this dude is like writing, basically writing the Bible. So we can't let him get hurt. And you could see how the church in Caesarea was like, no, no, Paul, you're too important. You're the man of God. You are much too important to be doing what you're talking about doing. Yet God had a plan and it worked out for his glory and for everyone else's good in life. So sometimes our faith will look a little reckless and true faith is always gonna go against the norm and it will always be countercultural. We are not called to blend into culture. I've said this many times too, but we are designed to be countercultural because culture is always, always, always going to be about self, always. But part of this faith life that is so crazy to people outside of faith is that we're not actually living for ourselves anymore. We're not even just living for our family. We're not even just living for the people we care about and love and trying to store up a nest egg for our people. We're actually living for something much greater than ourselves. We're living for our Savior and we're giving our life to him. So it's going to be countercultural. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We all know this verse, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What renews our mind? I know we like to think sometimes to renew our mind, we need a vacation. Can anybody say amen? Well, I was setting you up because that's not the right answer. It's a spa day. That's the real mind renewal, right? No, and those things can be good. You know, retreat, whatever. That can help you get, you know, recoup and relax and, and get some uh, much needed rest. But the renewing your mind that Romans 12 is talking about here has nothing to do with that. It is about a spiritual renewal. It is about, a, it is about living not according to this culture, not tr conforming to the things of the world, but, but living in such a way that we are completely living up under Jesus and our faith in him is guiding every aspect of our life. And listen, this will get us out of our comfort zones, right? Living a life of faith is not a comfort zone. And we like comfort zones. They're called comfort zones for a reason because they're comfortable. And everybody likes to be comfortable. I mean, you ever walk around with a rock in your shoe and just think, that's eh, all right. I mean, the first thing you're gonna do is pull your shoe off and get that rock out. We like comfort and frankly, why wouldn't we? We're kind of designed for it. And it's all, everything's marketed, you know, comfort, safety, ease, everything, you know, and that's, that's all fine and good. It's fine and good when you're looking to purchase a computer or a phone or a car, but it cannot, we cannot allow it to bleed into our faith that our faith is just about our comfort. Because our faith is not about our comfort, it's about living a life of sacrifice for him. We don't, we don't have the, the luxury of just trying to live within our comfort zone. And frankly, if you wanna be great, which I think all of us want to be great in some way, not necessarily that we'd be, get all kinds of acclaim and the world would love us, but great in the eyes of God, right? We all wanna be considered great. We wanna be approached by Jesus when we get into heaven and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We all want that, right? Well, we have to redefine what greatness looks like, or I should say not allow the world to define what greatness looks like. You know, when Jesus defined greatness, he talked about John the Baptist. He said, of people born, of men born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But by the way, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. So, you know, because John the Baptist, even though he was, 
his stories in the New Testament, he was a living during the Old Covenant. The New Covenant didn't come till the end of the Gospels when Jesus died and rose again, right? So all of us standing on the Gospel, living in the New Covenant, have an advantage over even someone as great as John the Baptist. But he's saying John the Baptist was so great, and then you look at the life of John the Baptist, and you think, wow, what Jesus considers great is pretty cool, and it's totally opposite of what the world would say. Because John's the one that, you know, he was baptizing, he baptized Jesus, and then Jesus started baptizing, and so people came to, to John and tried to bait him. And they said, hey, this Jesus guy that you baptized, he's over there on the other side of the Jordan, he's baptizing more people than you. And they tried to get him upset. And if you know the story, you know what John said. He's basically, and I'm roughly paraphrasing, but he basically said, good, that's why I'm here. He said, in fact, the disparity between him and I, whatever it is, it actually needs to grow. He needs to increase, I need to decrease. That's what greatness looks like. Living this life where my life, I'm here to serve the purposes of Jesus. I'm here to serve the king. I'm here to honor and glorify and exalt the king and to help further the kingdom of God. And that's what greatness really looks like. And when we have that approach in our life, then reckless faith doesn't seem like that big of a stretch for us because we're just doing what our king is asking us to do and living for him and glorifying him. And when we, when we live in that way, we can trust and know that God will meet us, that he will show himself faithful in our lives all the time. Amen? Praise God. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like to pray for us today. I want to invite you to come pray at the altar if you'd like. If you want to spend some time praying on your own, that's fine. That's good. I also want to pray for all of us. And I think it's important that we respond to the word of God. It is his word that transforms us. It is his word that takes what we are and changes us and makes us like him. Church, that's why it's so important that we are in the word. I mean, I know for, for many of us, it's a difficult discipline to stay consistently in our Bibles. Maybe you read it and you feel like you don't understand it. Can I just challenge you? You don't have to be the super Christian that reads it for three hours a day right off the bat. Man, just read a, a chapter a day. Find a book in the Bible that actually kind of appeals to you and just and read and commit to doing that over and over and, and you'll get to where you just grow to a place where you feel like you missed something if you didn't read it that day. And it's not a religious practice. It's not like trying to prove to God how much you love him. But we, we can't grow in our relationship with him if we're not spending time with him and in his word. So let's pray together today. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your presence in this place, Lord. Lord, as we sang today, King of glory, fill this place. And when, I, when I think of that, when I sing that, I think of my own heart, fill this place. Fill us, Lord, to overflow and fill us with your spirit, God. We give ourselves to you today, Lord. We give ourselves to you. You are worthy of our lives. God, you are worthy of our faith. You're worthy of our reckless faith, our progressive faith. God, you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of our obedience. God, would you help us to obey you even when people look at us and think that we're foolish for doing it? God, as we've done this series of madness, 
God, I, I pray that you would remind us and help us to just look for your approval and no one else's. God, that we would seek to do your will, that we would seek to honor and glorify you and nobody else. And Lord, we know we need to be reminded of it constantly. Would you remind us that you are the one that we live for? I thank you, Lord. I pray that you would help each and every one of us to seek after you, to stay in your word, to pray and speak to you. What a privilege we have to be able to come into the throne room, to be able to speak with our Lord and Savior whenever we want and know that you are there and that you're listening and that you are here. God, do a work in our hearts, Lord. Help us to be committed to you. In the hustle and bustle of this world and all the things that are pulling at our attention, God, I pray we'd put you first and we'd keep you there, God. Lord, we thank you that you don't, you don't compartmentalize us or you don't put us in a category and turn your back on us, Lord. You're always drawing us to you. No matter what we've done, no matter how much we've neglected you, you're always drawing. God, thank you for drawing us today. We repent today where we have fallen short, where we have turned our back, where we have put other things ahead of you. And God, we ask you to forgive us. We ask you to pull us close and to open our eyes to see you in a greater way, in a greater capacity, Lord. We love you so much. We thank you for your presence and your mercy and your grace in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Praise God. Thank the Lord. We praise God one more time today. Thank you, God. Hallelujah.